Now I'm looking around because I'm not sure I see them, but there is a newly engaged couple in the church. I don't know if I see them, but we can congratulate Joe Bedikian and Elo Arushian for getting engaged yesterday. So we can flood them with text messages if you'd like. The other note I did want to mention is you may sound hear a little bit of the hoarseness in my voice. No, it's not because I was screaming at the Boston game or anything like that. Although I was screaming at the Boston game, but um, <clears throat> hopefully it's uh, not too bothersome. But let's go before the Lord as we approach God's word. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to receive it and obey. Help us to live for your glory because you're worthy. Strengthen us to think properly, that we might live properly. In Christ's name, amen. So if a doctor were to prescribe poison instead of medicine, I think we'd be upset. Um, that's probably an understatement. It wouldn't make sense. The doctors are supposed to help and heal, not harm. If we found out that a counselor was taking advantage of his or her patient in whatever way, we'd be angry. We'd say, you're supposed to be caring for this person, not exploiting this person. You're, you're supposed to be different than what that person has experienced in life. If a mother abandons her children, we think, how could you? You're, you're a parent. You're, you're supposed to be there for them. You're supposed to love them and provide for the children, not abandon them. We know what a doctor is supposed to be like. We know what a, a counselor is supposed to be like. Uh, we know what a mom is supposed to be like. And when the person's actions don't fit what we know they're supposed to be like, we know that there's something wrong. Well, listen. Paul says the same thing to us as Christians. When our actions and our thoughts and our desires don't match not only what we're supposed to be, but what really we already are in Christ. So when those things don't match, Paul says there's a problem. They should match. Paul has just called us to a deep unity with all believers, particularly in the local body, and he has pushed us to live in the local church here as one, each of us using the various gifts that God has given to us for the whole, building each other up so that, Paul says, that the body will grow up into its head, into Christ, into maturity. Now Paul's going to turn to some more specifics about what maturity looks like. He already told us that it looks like Christ. That's what we're supposed to look like. For the next couple of chapters, Paul's going to explain what it means to live Christianly. To live Christianly in a fallen world. Why? Because we're Christians. And because of what Christ has done in us and for us, now our lives should match who we are. 
In our passage this morning, Paul's going to emphasize that to live Christianly, we have to both put off, get rid of some things, and we have to put on, add some things. Off and on. Please open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading at verse 17, Ephesians 4, starting at verse 17 through verse 24. Before we get to the passage, actually, let me give you a brief outline. Look at the back of your bulletin, and there's an outline for you. You can fill these in. First, there's an exhortation. We must walk differently. Second, an observation about our past from Paul. What futility looks like. Third, a call to a life in contrast to the world's learning Christ. Here's what Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 17 and on. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen? May God bless the reading of his word. Here's our first heading, our first point this morning. We must walk differently. Look at verse 17. The first part, again, the exhortation here from Paul. Paul is serious about what he's saying here. We see this because of how he lays it out. Notice what he says there in verse 17. Not only does he say, I say this, but he does what? He testifies in the Lord. I don't know if you have a translation that's different than that, but some translations translate that word instead of he testifies in the Lord to he charges us in the Lord. Paul is invoking the Lord to make this point. He is calling the Lord as his witness. This matters. This isn't Paul giving something from, uh, you know, shooting from the hip or this is Paul's whim. No, no, this is the Lord's word and the Lord's work. This isn't Paul speculating as to what would be good and what's not good. No, this is from the Lord. He's presenting this as a charge in the presence of God. We must walk differently. We cannot any longer walk like the world that we once were part of. Clearly, he's speaking to an audience who had walked like the Gentiles. Notice that. In fact, we're going to come to this, but he's speaking to Gentiles for the most part. What that means for Paul, though, to live as a Gentile is that they did not know God. They did not have a relationship with him. But now they do. Everything should change. He's writing to believers. 
And he wants them to see and grasp because you are Christians now by grace, you must live like Christians. It's who we are. If we live like other people, if we live like something other than a Christian, if we follow a pattern that looks more in line with the world, then something's wrong. There is a disconnect for Paul. And so often that's the case with us. You walk like the world. At one point, Paul says, now stop. Now, I want you to ask yourself some questions, beloved. Is Paul speaking to you? How you did things before you came to know Christ can't possibly be the same now that you know Christ. Or another way of putting it, how the world does things cannot possibly be the pattern by which we Christians do them. These things don't have anything in common. This goes for every aspect of our lives, beloved, including our business practices and our politics, to name a few things. Think about that. Is there any part of our life that is not somehow touched by Christ's lordship? Is there anything about us that Christ does not make a difference for? If you think to yourself, well, you know what? My career ambitions are the same. Something's wrong. If you think, well, yeah, what attracts me is the same. Something's wrong. But I don't want us to think superficially. But I want us to think to the core and examine our hearts. If we're the same as before Christ, something's wrong. If our ambitions haven't been modified, we aren't thinking Christianly. If our attractions aren't changing, we aren't thinking Christianly. Look, you can have the same career, but with vastly different purposes now that Jesus is your Lord, right? It has to be that way. We have to ask ourselves, how can it be that following the world and following Christ is the same thing? It can't be. And we can only serve one master. There are a lot of implications here. As I mentioned, the people Paul was writing to were mainly Gentiles. So how can Paul say to them, no longer walk as Gentiles do? He's like, hey, that's what we are. We're Gentiles. Unless Paul is telling them something important. As a matter of fact, they've been changed from inside out. They are no longer Gentiles. One scholar wrote this, they must no longer behave as Gentiles, for they are no longer Gentiles. Pretty simple. Elsewhere, Paul says, we're a new creation. Remember what defined Gentileness earlier in the letter? They were alienated from God. They were separate. They were far off. But God has brought us close. We're not outsiders any longer. We are now insiders. We had no relationship with the living God. Now the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We're gospel people. So Paul says live like it. Again, Paul goes back to who they are in Christ. He says, if you're in Christ, you're not a Gentile. Don't live like you are one. All the imperatives are always grounded in indicatives. This is who you are. Now live like it. But how does a Gentile behave? That's what Paul lays out first in verse 17 and through verse 19. He identifies the main issue as the futility of their minds. Here's our second point. 
what futility looks like. Futility of their minds, Paul says. By the way, that word that Paul uses there that's translated futility is a word that means empty or meaningless. As one author put it, if a Gentile were to pick up Paul's letter and were to read it, there's no doubt they would be offended. Paul is saying that their thinking, the way of life, their approach is useless. It is empty. He's focusing in on their thinking, and he makes a strong statement that he lumps in the thinking of all of those in the world throughout history that's not grounded in Christ. He says, if it's not in Christ, it's futile. Beloved, non-Christians can certainly know things. Their knowledge can even have apparent use and meaning for society. That's not Paul's issue here. But there is a profound emptiness because without God, there is no true or lasting meaning. Beloved, you can try to make up meaning, which many people do. You can say, well, look, if, if many people agree, then there's meaning to it, some sort of consensus. You can try as creatively as possible. In the end, if there is no God, there is no compelling meaning. So as has been said throughout history, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You can't convince me otherwise. In fact, notice that Paul goes further to say that their understanding is darkened. That means they can't see. It's another way of saying that they're blind. They're ignorant, Paul says. Look at verse 18. They're ignorant. That means that they either don't know God, or if you're thinking back to Romans chapter 1, they know God, but they suppress the knowledge about God, and they reject him. It's an intentional ignorance. Think about how much darkened understanding we, we're seeing around us today. They just suppress the truth. It's as though there's an intentional rejection, an intentional opposition to logic and reality. Logic is constantly questioned. Reality questioned. I remember years ago, running into a student at UCLA who was heading off to a top medical school. Another friend of mine was with me it was my friend who knew him, so we stopped to chat with this guy. My friend was a believer. This gentleman was not. Somehow in the conversation, it turned to the topic of abortion. I really don't know how it turned there. It must have been a hot topic at the time. And my Christian friend, uh, also heading off to med school himself, appealed to this intelligent young man explaining that abortion is the taking of a life. And he said, look, maybe you don't agree with uh, when life begins, he said, but at least you have to agree that if left unhindered, in other words, if you don't step in and abort, it has the potential, if you want to use that word, for human life. We believe it is human life, but at least if you don't intercede, the response from this young man has stuck with me for some 25 years. The response from this future doctor was to point to a leaf on a tree that was next to us and say, well, there is as much potential for life in that leaf as there is in the embryo. Really? What could I say? I darkened reasoning, futility. It was meaningless. I'm sure you've all seen clips of otherwise intelligent people or so it would seem, who argue in circles trying to define gender by virtue of whatever a person feels or desires at the time, 
Beloved, it's emptiness. You can't even have discussions any longer. Paul said this 2,000 years ago. He didn't say it yesterday. We think it's getting worse and worse, maybe. But Paul could say that 2,000 years ago, and it was true then. Look at verse 18 closely. The world is alienated from the life of God. They have rejected the very source of truth and life. Notice why. See, it's not a head issue. It's not about their intelligence. It's a heart issue. The hardness of their hearts, or another translation, the dullness of their hearts is what has caused their mental futility. That's Paul's point. Look at verse 19. He makes it even clearer. They have become callous, which means they don't feel any longer. They don't feel reality. One definition of this word that Paul uses here translates this way, to lose capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. Isn't that exactly what's lost? Imagine nothing is shameful in this world any longer except to believe that there's something shameful. Paul keeps going. He hits it on the head as though he were writing today. He says, look, they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of of impurity. That language means they've abandoned all restraints. There's licentiousness. There are no boundaries any longer. You do you. They've given themselves up to pleasures and desires. They're greedy, he says, to practice this. What does that mean? They need more and more and more and different and new. More extreme, more perverse. Why? Because it can't satisfy them. The things they're pursuing are not made to satisfy, and we're not made to be satisfied by any of those things, except whatever is within the context of God's glorious design. That'll satisfy us. It's like a child taking a, a new toy, perhaps a remote-controlled car, and they submerge it underwater in their kiddie pool. And they wonder why it can't drive. And the child says, it's not working. And you respond, that's not how it's supposed to work. It's not meant to work that way. If only people would realize that God's order is good and right. And when followed, brings about the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction, their greatest fullness. But they have rejected God and the life that is in him. That's the futility they can't think right because they reject God as the foundation of knowledge. Their hearts are hardened and calloused. They don't feel even the conscience that God has built into them. Their desires reign supreme, but little do they know that desires were never meant to reign. And so they simply lead to pain, suffering, and destruction. And Paul says, no longer walk like that. No longer live according to your pleasures. Instead, live according to his ways. In fact, look at verse 20. Paul turns and he says to the Ephesians, that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And by the way, he does assume that because he's been writing to them as saints. 
He believes they're believers. Paul wants us to reflect on how the world lives to see the contrast between that and how we're supposed to live. He wants us to know that we're supposed to be different, so we need to live differently. But sometimes, beloved, we have to stop and examine and ask ourselves some really tough questions. Because it's really easy for us to look at the world and go, that's them and we're different. When the reality is that there are a lot of times that our thinking is just in line with theirs. We spend a bit of time thinking about just how we think and how we make decisions and where our ambitions are, where our hearts are, what we trust in, what we hope for. We may find that we're not as different as we thought. But we need to be. The counter to the world's futility is the truth that is in Jesus. Being taught by God, learning Christ. Our third point, learning Christ. Look at verses 20 to 24. What does learning Christ mean? Well, one author said that it's being shaped by his teaching. Another said that it's submitting to his rule of righteousness and responding to his summons to standards and values completely different from what they have known. In other words, beloved, we have to think about our own values and see if they actually match Christ's. And where they don't, we have to ask him for the strength to conform to his. Learning Christ is being grounded in the gospel and the word. Learning Christ is seeking to surrender our old ways for God's ways. It takes humility and faith to trust the Lord. And change. This is what the gospel's doing in us. Paul lays out three specific ways or aspects, excuse me, of learning Christ. First, look at verses, verse 22. First, he says, put off the old self. Something's got to go, beloved. Actually, a lot of things got to go. One author called this ongoing repentance. It's a regular part of the Christian life, Repentance. Where's the old self? We have to ask the question. Where's the old man appearing in my life? Seek and destroy. Paul knows that there is this continuing battle between the flesh and the spirit in the life of every believer. In Galatians 5.17, here's what Paul writes. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Beloved, there's a battle going on. In many ways, it's a battle for our minds. It's a battle for our minds to realize that, guess what? We're actually dead to sin. We don't have to live that way any longer. There's a tension between who we are in Christ and sometimes how we're living. There's a fight between what some call remaining sin and the newness that we are and have become because of the gospel. There is a fight. Are we just giving in? Paul says, put off the old man regularly as we're learning Christ. That's part of what's taking place. As I mentioned, regular repentance in response to the grace of God working in us. You see, the fruit of faith and trusting in Jesus is repentance, a turning away from what displeases him. 
But we have to examine our hearts to see. You remember what Paul says to Titus? He says, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. His grace is training us to be able to see where the world has infiltrated and what needs to be put off. Let me say this, beloved, the, the more we grow in our understanding of the word and the gospel, the more we're going to be able to identify those areas where the flesh or the old man are appearing and even reigning over us. It's only knowing the truth that helps us fight against deception. Look back at verse 22, because what is often the most deceptive of all is our desires. The old man lives by desires, but not the new man. The new man lives by the Spirit. How often do we go after something because we want it? It looks good. It appears like it's going to please us. Oh, it's going to satisfy us. We ignore the warnings. We have a narrowed vision for that thing itself. No obstacle can stand in the way, and then we get it, and what happens? It lied. It could never satisfy us. The job, the vacation, the sports car, the big house, the husband, the wife, the kids, the degree. Maybe in my case, the books. I don't know. You name it. Whatever your heart desires, if it controls you, it can't satisfy you because you're living for it. So what's the solution? The next aspect of learning Christ helps with the first. We're supposed to put off the old man. We're also supposed to be renewed in our minds. That's the second point, the renewal of our minds. Think of Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, it's when our minds are transformed by the gospel and the spirit of God that we are able to know what is good and acceptable and to desire it. But only then. In fact, so much of the Christian growth is thinking differently, seeing differently. Imagine how our minds have changed the more we've come to know the living God. From seeing him as distant to knowing he's near. From seeing him as judge to seeing him as a loving father. And the more we get to know the heart of God, the more we're able to discern what pleases and honors him. Colossians says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Romans 12, 9, Paul, Paul writes to the Romans about sincere love and what the Christian life looks like. And part of that sincere love is this. He says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Beloved, we can only know what to abhor and what to cling to if our minds are being renewed and we are seeing through Christ-centered lenses. You're a Christian now. You're supposed to see differently so you can live differently. Learning Christ is learning how to think with Christ at the center. Learning to view the world with the gospel realities setting the context and the goals. Listen, when we know the God of the Bible and how his sovereignty works, 
as we grow and we start seeing how so many different aspects of our lives are completely against God's order, against his desires, please know that the thought isn't supposed to be regret and lament over a wasted life. It's to be gratitude that we now see and a passion to make the changes that honor a faithful Savior. Finally, the third aspect, put on the new self. The language Paul uses gives the impression of taking off old clothes and putting on something new. It isn't right to keep the dirty clothes on before you put on your new clean clothes. It doesn't make sense. You have to put off to put on. But notice here that what Paul's doing, he's using the language of creation. It's a recreation. We're remade now in the image of God, in his likeness, in Christ. We're supposed to put on the new self which is made in Christ in righteousness and holiness, not sin and pleasure-seeking. In fact, the new self is Christ and his righteousness that becomes ours, and then his spirit changes us. It is true righteousness and holiness, Paul says, but it might be better to translate it righteousness and holiness that comes from truth. Because the gospel is the source, and it changes everything. Putting it all together now, thinking back over the passage Christians cannot remain who they were before Christ, nor can they continue to look like the world. We're different, so we have to live differently. What's different about us? Fundamentally, how we see the world, how we define good, and how we find contentment. For the Christian, the triune God is the center of all things and gives it meaning. For the Christian, the good is found in the Lord and defined by his design. For the Christian, joy, peace, and satisfaction, these are found in living according to the ways of God, enabled by the grace of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. So we put off the old man. We carefully examine our hearts, our values, our decisions, and we ask does this line up with who I am in Christ? Or does this bear greater resemblance to my old self, the flesh, and the world? When we see things that look like the world, we prayerfully ask the Lord to change our hearts, to give us strength to see as he sees. We take it off. We see it as the death it really is. We put on the new. We put on Christ because he has already made us new, we walk in newness. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, so much to think about in this text, so much to cover. Perhaps a strained voice as a distraction. But Lord, let nothing distract us from your truth, without which we cannot be who you've called us to be. Lord, help us to not be so shocked at the way the world is living because the world's the world. Instead, let us be shocked when we live that way and help us to repent, to reevaluate, and to come once again before your throne of grace and trust that you will sanctify us. Work in our hearts, Lord. Change us from the inside out. Only you can do that. Draw us near. In Jesus' name, amen.